Before we go to the Word, let's go to our Father once again. Father, thank you once again to allow us to come before you and to hear you speak to us through your Word. May your Spirit convict, may it lead, um, and help us discern how we may apply what we hear this morning. Um, hear what you have written down into our lives for your glory. Help us to submit ourselves to your truth. Help us to stay focused on that above all things. Um, and we ask this, Father, for your glory, by the power of the Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So today, um, if you don't have a Bible, um, you know, we have Bibles in the back, so if you need one, uh, feel free to uh, grab one. Uh, the chapters will be on the screen above me, and I say chapters because we've got three chapters to cover. We've got about 96 verses uh, to cover this morning. Last week, all we covered was chapter 17. Uh, there was a lot in chapter 17. That was David and Goliath. This week, um, goal is to keep it simple. We're going to cover a lot of ground, but we're going to keep it simple. This is how you should approach the text of Scripture, is to keep it simple. And that's what I want to help uh, demonstrate to you uh, this morning. Especially in how we come to understand the text of the Old Testament. It's, it would be easy for us to look at uh, these chapters uh, that have David, Saul, and Jonathan, others in it, and, and look at them and think about how we should or shouldn't be like them. Um, and of course, it is wise to do character studies. Um, it, it's always wise to look at people um, in the past or currently living, especially men and women of influence and of achievement, and, and learn from them. Uh, but that's not what Sunday mornings are for. Sunday mornings are for Christ. So when we come to the text of the Old Testament, we must ask ourselves, like we did last week, where is Christ in this message, or how does this lead us to Christ in his crucifixion? How would Jesus explain the text before us this morning to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, as he did in Luke 24? So this morning, we're going to cover 1 Samuel chapter 18 through chapter 20. Um, And as we go through these three chapters, we'll ask ourselves, how does this point to Christ? But we will also consider Paul's instructions found in Romans uh, 15.4, where Paul says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So how does the Old Testament do this? How does 1 Samuel 18-20 do this for us this morning? In Romans 15.4, that's a verse that's written in the context of how we are to look to Christ as our example and how we might glorify God as one body. So in doing so, we must first identify our three main characters properly. We have Saul, who has been with us for quite some time now. And Saul, he's representative of the world. He has rejected God, and God has ultimately rejected him. Jonathan He's representative primarily of believers. He has a desire to serve God's anointed. That's David, who is a type of Christ. Um, and in fact, Jonathan, he's the, he's the person that bookends our section today. We start with Jonathan making a covenant with David. And then we end with Jonathan in tears as he suffers the consequences of that very covenant of which he made with David. It's a covenant of joy and goodness that was right. Yet it's a covenant that is marked with suffering, similar to the new covenant of which you and I, we who are believers, are partakers of. David, while he continues to be a type of Christ, I think we all can still identify with him as well. After all, David is not the son of God. There are certain things of Jesus that you and I just can't simply identify with. But David, he is a mere shadow of Jesus. And David, he is anointed, and you and I, as 1 John 2.20 tells us, we are anointed as well, and, and because we are part of the new covenant. We have the Holy One, the Holy Anointing on us also. So with this framework laid, I pray that this morning you will learn from these chapters three things. In chapter 18, we'll learn that the work of God ultimately divides. In chapter 19, the work of God prevails. And then in 20, the work of God suffers, meaning that it comes at a personal cost. So we're going to read every verse uh, this morning. We'll read each chapter um, in its entirety, follow it up with some teaching, and then we'll proceed with the next chapter, and then uh, we will close with communion. So let's go ahead and begin with chapter 18. 
As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor, and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war, and this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul of tambourines with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry and the saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Merab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I, and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time of Merab, Saul's daughter should have been given to David. She was given to Adriel, the Mahalathite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter Michal loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, Let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, You shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law? Since I am a poor man and have no reputation. And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michal for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. In our text, we see the work of God uniting first before it divides. And though that's not always the order of process, that's what we see here. We see Jonathan here loving David as his own soul. See, they both seek the heart of Yahweh. David is after God's heart. Jonathan, as we've already witnessed with his, his faith, with his armor bearer against the Philistines, his heart too is after Yahweh. So they both share the same, they're like-minded, they're, they're, they're kindred souls. Both of them desire uh, to be faithful and to be loyal to Yahweh, and this is what unites Jonathan with David. And they also share the battlefield. So they have this common veteran experience uh, between the two. So likewise, Jonathan, he makes a covenant with David. He gives David his garments and his weapons, the the garments and weapons of a prince, 
of an heir, which is symbolic because David, he himself, he is the next king to be. And so if he, when he wears this stuff, he will look like the heir, so to speak. This is similar to what Christ does for us. When we enter into the new covenant with him, except the roles are reversed. Christ, the son of David, clothes us with his righteousness as David, excuse me, as Jonathan clothed David with his clothes. Thus, when the father of Christ looks upon us, it's not our sin he sees, but it is the righteousness of Christ. Now, this friendship between Jonathan and David, it's a very intimate friendship. It's a very intimate relationship. But let's address this um, criticism uh, that's out there right now. It's not a homo, homosexual relationship as many critics today try to pass it off. Those who are pro-gay will say, well, look at Jonathan David. They, they kissed. They, they loved each other. That was clearly a gay relationship. The author of Samuel, who knew of Bathsheba, Uriah, and the sins that David committed against them and shared that sin with all of the world and all of the history, why would the author, who didn't hesitate to speak on the sin of adultery and murder, hesitate to speak on the sin of sodomy and homosexual activity? It just would not make sense. If they were engaged in that type of relationship, the author more than likely would have shared it when the Torah is clear that it is a sin, it is an abomination uh, before God. So this is just a very intimate relationship, a relationship between two men, which in America we could use uh, certainly more of. But this, you, this um, unity between David and Jonathan, it's brought together because God has ordained David to be uh, the next king, that he has the anointed on him, and they're brought together because of the work of God. But the work of God, though it unites it also divides. So while David bonds with Jonathan, David does not with Saul. And this shouldn't be surprising for anyone who's a believer. I mean, simple experience as a believer, if we are faithful to Scripture, ought to teach us that when we are faithful to God's word, division comes. But if you have been wondering if your experience, if the division you have experienced is normal, or maybe you've been wondering, maybe I'm doing it wrong Don't fret. Anyone who has read the Gospels should know this to be true as well. Consider the words of Jesus in Luke 12, verses 51 and 53. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. This is is the way of Christ, division. And then we see this played out with Saul and Jonathan. We see it played out with Saul and David. Saul has taken David in uh, essentially as a son, so to speak. He's in his house. See, Saul recognizes the work of God in David. Saul initially likes David. He, he loves David initially until he recognizes the work of God in David. David is successful at war. When Saul tries to strike down David twice in one night with the spear, David is able to evade the spear. So Saul recognizes Yahweh is with him. And so this affection that Saul had for David, this Fear that he tried to incite onto David with the spear in his hand. Now Saul's the one who fears David, and he attempts to destroy David out of fear. And, and do notice uh, David's patience with Saul, right? Saul had two opportunities. David didn't escape on the first opportunity the spear was thrown, thrown at him. It's almost like he, was, he knows Saul had a problem, had an issue, right? This is why he's playing the lair before Saul. And the spear got thrown at him once, but David remains. David still tries to help Saul through his issues, but Saul still tries to destroy him. So Saul attempts to destroy David out of fear, either in battle, encouraging him to fight the Philistines uh, and hoping that David will be slain in battle and that he will fall by the hand of the Philistines. Um, And he tries to do this by saying, hey, if you go out and fight valiantly for me, the daughter that I promised you for Goliath, well, I'll give her to you. And David being humble, as he often is, refuses. 
He's like, I can't marry your oldest daughter. Who am I to do this? And then David doesn't die in battle. So this first plan by Saul fails. So as time goes on, Saul learns that Michal is in love with David. And by the wording of it, it almost sounds like David is perhaps in love with her as well. almost sounds like this is a, a mutual thing. The text just says it's his daughter that's in love with her, but David does seem more um, responsive to this offer. And initially, he, he refuses, but with the bride price put before him, he's like, okay, well, if there's a bride price that I have to earn, I'll go do it. And Saul puts a rather ridiculous bride price. He wants David to kill 100 Philistines, because that's the only way you're going to get 100 foreskins off of them, is if you kill them. Uh, but he goes out and he slays 200 of them. And so he has 200 foreskins instead of the 100 to bring uh, back. Saul is hoping that by David marrying Michal, that he will be seduced into idolatry. See, Michal, as we're going to read about in the next chapter, she was an idolatress. She, she, she practiced idolatry, um, and idolatry is a, a, a sin that Israel constantly went back into. Uh, it's a sin that they experienced right at, at, the, at the bottom of Mount Sinai. It's a sin that we, the church, is very much guilty of today. And ultimately, we do it because we want to keep the peace, Right? See, if David was concerned about keeping the peace with, with uh, Saul and, and not be about faithful of Yahweh, he could have done it. But David was just more about he's after Yahweh's heart. Saul wanted nothing to do with Yahweh. We need to get it out of our heads that we think that if the church, if only the church would act more like Jesus, well, people would love us. The world will love us. If we would only do what the world wants us to do, if we would only love our neighbor as we ought to outside of what God's word says, well, the world will love us and we will have peace. Nowhere in scripture is that taught. Nowhere in scripture do we even see that happening. If, he, if we keep saying if the church would act like Jesus Christ, you know what the outcome is? Crucifixion. I mean, that's, that's what happened to Jesus. He was rejected by the world he came to save. Likewise, we got to be careful that we don't allow ourselves to be seduced by the love of the world, right? The world can't pretend to love the church, but the world will only love the church as much as the church benefits it. Until then, when it realizes the church will not go its way, the world will reject the church. We need to stop sleeping with the world Monday through Saturday and then come to the Lord in his bed on Sunday thinking it's okay. You can't do that. You, if you're married, you, you wouldn't expect your spouse to sleep around with whoever six nights out of the week and then come to your bed one night a week and think you live in a faithful marriage. This is why throughout the Old Testament, the image of unfaithfulness and, and adultery is used to describe the behavior of Israel and God's people in their unfaithfulness. It is no small thing to think that we, the church, can sleep with the world most of the days or just compromise on little things and think that we're okay with God. We have to understand that division is going to come when we are faithful to God and when he works through us. So though there will be hostility and enmity between the world and the work of God, the work of God ultimately always prevails. So let us read chapter 19. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in the secret place and hide yourself, and I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoice. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again. 
And David went out and followed the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. And then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul, so that he stuck the spear, struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal let David down through the window, and he fled and escaped. Michal took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed, that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michal, Why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go, so that he has escaped? Michal answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel Ramah, which is about three miles away, and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Nayath, and it, and it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Nioth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Siku. And he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth in Ramah. And he went there to Naoth in Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? A saying that we've heard before here, Saul, remember a few chapters ago, Saul prophesied uh, as he was going along and after he was anointed by Samuel. That was a good experience for Saul prophesying. Now the saying is equated to him with an experience that's not so good for him. So here, Saul, he steps up his efforts to squash David. His attempts to kill him are now overt attempts. He's not hiding it anymore, and he seeks to kill them. But God's work will not be stopped. It won't be stopped by any king. Just consider Psalm 2, specifically verses 1 and 2, and the final verse of it, verse 12, where it says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's what Saul's doing. That's what the authorities of, of the earth continue to do. And then it ends with kiss the son. That is the Davidic king. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly, quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. If Saul had knew, knew these words, he probably wouldn't have listened. But it's definitely applicable to him because if he had just shown favor to David, he would have found refuge. But he didn't. He plotted in vain. He raged against God. But God will always prevail. His work will not be stopped. So Saul here, he's acting like any other king. And God gives us three ways in which he does provide for his plan to succeed. The first way that we see, and do not think that this is an exhaustive list. This is just examples that we have in the text uh, this morning. The first way is that God uses his own people, the church, to prevail. Right? He's using Jonathan to deliver David from the hand of his father. Jonathan warns David about the threat. Jonathan does like an apologetic uh, discussion with his dad. He does an apology, kind of like what Justin Martyr of the second century did. If you don't know Justin Martyr, he was a martyr, hence the last name, um, because he, he wrote apologies to the Roman government defending the faith of Christians and saying, hey, we're good citizens. We're, we're a blessing to the Roman Empire. Eventually, uh, Justin Martyr becomes a martyr, but this is what Jonathan is doing in the same vein. He, he's, he's defending the actions of David and trying to get Saul to reconsider his actions. Like, don't put sin on you. David is innocent. 
He's a blessing to you. Look at what he has done. And if you're, if you're faithful in this, he'll be more of a blessing. So Jonathan eventually persuades Saul to relent. Jonathan is a peacemaker. Though there is division in the world, we're still called to be peacemakers. And as such, Saul relents. And he is blessed by it for a time. And the world is blessed when it blesses God's people and is at peace with God's people. But peace between God and rebellious hearts will only last so long. So Saul, once again, he strikes out against David. And this second time, David doesn't hang around for a second thrust. It's after one, and then he leaves. And so the second method that God uses, he'll use the world itself to prevail. He uses the wife of David, who is an idolater, who uh, uh, Michal, to warn David this time. And Michal uses an idol in her house, probably one that she worships, um, to deceive her father um, by, you know, Ferris Bueller uh, style, putting it into the bed, pretending that it is uh, David in there. And it's at this time that Psalm 59 is written. So if you're curious, Psalm 59 is written in the context of David um, hiding from Saul um, after, uh, after this incident with uh, Saul throwing the spear at him before he flees to Ramah. So if you haven't read Psalm 59, today might be a good time to do it since it's in this context. The third way that we see God um, delivering, making sure that his work prevails, is that he himself intervenes. Right? David flees to Ramah to be with Samuel. Saul sends his men. He sends three different groups. All three groups end up prophesying. Um, And then Saul himself, perhaps in his arrogance, thinks God's spirit won't do that to him. He himself goes. And even before he arrives, on his way, he starts prophesying um, with the spirit of God causing him to do so. This man who plotted in vain, enraged against Yahweh, is now humiliated in the process as he prophesies, and now he is completely exposed physically before everyone all day long. So, though the work of God divides, we who do his work must trust in his sovereignty, as David did, and recognize that God will use any means that he deems necessary to ensure his work prevails. But the prevailing reality of God's will does not mean there will be no suffering. We have to understand that. Just because God is suffering, I mean, excuse me, God is sovereign does not mean there will be no suffering. Quite the opposite. And Christ showed and taught us that in the gospel as he himself, who even asked, may this cup be passed from me, but if it's your will, let it be done. So he, Christ himself, willingly obeyed God's will, And that will led him to the cross to suffer the wrath of his father. So now let us read chapter 20 and see the suffering that awaits Jonathan and David. Then David fled from Nioth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is a new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city. For there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says, Good, it will be well with your servants. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servants, for you have brought your servants into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If if I knew that I was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? 
And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go into the field. So they both went into the field. Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him. For he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed, because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand, and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy, saying, Go find the arrows. If I say to the boy, Look, the arrows on the side of you, take them. Then you are to come, for as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger." But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse came to come to the mill, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David. Because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David, and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, Run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master, but the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. Soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap, fell on his face to the ground, bowed three times, and they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. So this last chapter is one of heartbreak. Jonathan and David, they have a tough decision in front of them, one that could be very costly for them. We shouldn't be surprised by this. The road to glory, 
to life everlasting is a life marked with suffering. It is a life marked with sacrifice. Think of the words of Jesus in Luke 14, 27, 28. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? As such, in this situation, Jonathan and David, they do not throw wisdom to the wind. They just don't simply think, well, it'll all work out. They devise a plan. They're considering the cost. And in the process, they remind themselves of the covenant that they have for each other. David reminds Jonathan of it and Jonathan of David. And Jonathan, in verse 22, he points this out. Hey, if, if the resulted outcome that we don't want to have, that Saul wants to kill you, that my dad wants to kill you, if that happens, so be it. For it is the Lord who is sending you away. It's Yahweh who is causing this separation. How often when we see suffering in our lives and sacrifice comes to us, do we think this is what the Lord wants? Or do we get frustrated, frustrated and we think it's something else that wants to sacrifice? It very well could be God saying, you need to give this up. And how do you respond to it is important. David and Jonathan respond in faithfulness, not without the tears, but they respond in faithfulness. So they concoct this plan and they execute the plan as discussed. And in doing so, David doesn't come to uh, the first night on the new moon uh, for the meal. He's unclean. Um, it, that was a, a religious expectation on the first uh, day of the month. But on the second day of the month, you could come unclean. Uh, and so his absence is, is more significant. Saul wants to know why he is not at the king's table. Jonathan gives him the excuse. Saul rejects Jonathan, uh, brings his mother into it, try, uh, throws a spear at him. And so Jonathan ultimately He's rejected from his father. He experiences the fulfillment of the division in his house because of his association um, with David and his love for David, his faithfulness to the work of God ultimately. So when we ourselves, when we act for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the son of David, as Jonathan acts for David, people will hate us, possibly even our own parents our own spouses, our own children. Again, this is what Jesus tells us in Luke 12, 51-53, as we read earlier. Do not think that faith in Christ, following Christ, doing the Lord's work, means that your house will have peace. Do not allow idolatry to creep into your house and cause you to allow your children to engage in idolatry or your parents or your siblings to engage in idolatry as you turn a blind eye to it. Be the work of God, be the word of God, and call it out. Yes, you might lose that relationship, but that's the work of God. The division that's caused by the work of God here leads to two close, intimate friends separating. We cannot mistake this. We started with Jonathan creating a covenant with David because he loved David with his own soul as his own soul. Here we have the same language Jonathan loved David as his own. And we have the covenant being brought back up again here in chapter 20. This covenant that, David, that Jonathan made with David is the reason of the tears. Because of his association, his dedication. And notice that. Notice the pain of chapter 20. Don't, when you read this of David falling down and weeping before Jonathan. And them kissing each other. And Jonathan weeping with David. Don't miss the emotion of that. If, if, if it didn't matter, the author would have just said, and they went their ways. You know, it would have just been no emotion. Notice the pain. It's not brushed to the side. It is not muddled. And that's how it is in life. That's how it is when we do God's work. It's painful. As joyful as God's work is, it is not all rainbows and sunshine. In fact, it often is not. Jesus himself, we have two instances of him weeping. One over the city of Jerusalem because of their unfaithfulness and their unwillingness to come to him and to gather to him. And at the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus wept over the tomb of Lazarus, over the very man whom he, in just a few moments later, is going to be talking to. But yet he wept over the reality of the fallenness of creation and mankind. But notice this. 
Though Jonathan and David, though they are weeping, and their, their hearts, I mean, Jonathan, the day before, does not eat. And in part, it's because, yeah, his, his father rejected him and threw a spear at him. But he has to tell David the news, the news he doesn't want to tell David. He has to go tell his best friend, hey, we can't be, we can't see each other again. I, we, we can't go hunting together. We can't fight battles together. That is, it would be almost like losing David in battle. In fact, it probably would have been better, perhaps, easier to swallow if that had happened. But David's alive and well. Jonathan's alive and well, and they have to part ways. So, John, so, but despite this pain, despite these tears, they remind each other. They encourage one another in this midst of heartbreak. They remind each other of the vow, of the covenant that has been made. This promise that they have made is critical to them to endure the suffering, to endure the hardship of life. They also remind themselves that it's God who oversees both of them. And that, hey, if they don't see each other again in this life, if Jonathan is to be slain, which we find out later he does die on the battlefield with his dad and his brothers, in part because, well, Jonathan's part of the enemies of David. And again, chapter 20, Jonathan makes a vow saying, hey, may the Lord strike down the enemies of David. And so Jonathan does, but they don't know this at this point. And like, hey, if, if we don't see each other, may the Lord keep our relationship. May it extend to our descendants and may God preserve our relationship into eternity. And that's where David and Jonathan are right now. Though, they, though we read about them separated, we know right now they're together in the presence of Christ um, in eternity. So there is a happy ending to uh, chapter 20. But we likewise, despite the pain that you and I might have experienced this past week, it's not so much a might, it's more of a how much, and what this pain this coming week might bring into our lives, we remind ourselves of the covenants and the promises that the Son of David, Jesus Christ, has made with us. We do the same thing. We might do it with tears as well, but we do the same things because we want to stay faithful to the work of God, recognizing it causes division, but recognizing God is sovereign and he will bring us through it. But we also recognize suffering is part of this. It's part of the fallen condition. And in doing so, we remind ourselves that we have entered into this covenant with Christ, not as individuals on a solitary journey, but as individuals who have been adopted into a family, who have been grafted into a body where each member is encouraged and held accountable in their faithfulness in accordance to the scriptures. That's the fuller context of Romans 15, verses 1 through 6, where Paul tells us, hey, the Old Testament is used to encourage us, to provide us, so that we may endure with hope through our suffering. So when we look to David and Jonathan, this event that happened in their lives, it should encourage us to have us, endure, to have us, um, to have endurance in our suffering. And to, we look to them, and they, they trusted the promises they made with themselves and with God. Likewise, we need to do the same thing. We need to look to the promises that Christ has given to us through the gospel, and we need to look to each other through the promises we make as we engage in the covenant, as we engage in communion. This is why we do communion weekly. This is not just some practice we go through, some liturgical requirement that we check off, like, what does the church do? Practices communion. We do this for our nourishment. Communion is a gift from God so that when we are in tears, we are reminded of the gospel. We have the taste in our mouths. And because, look, the world's hard, especially now, there's a lot of things going on. We need to be reminded of the truth. And our feelings, they're going to be all over the place. We're going to have our highs, we're going to have our lows, but the truth is always there. And we can always count on it regardless of how we feel. So as we take of communion, we are reminded of the cost it took for the new covenant era to be ushered in, the shedding of the blood of the son of David, which was shed so that our sins could be forgiven. And thus, as we ourselves experience hardship because of God's work in our lives, we look to Christ and we acknowledge that Christ has led the way of suffering for us as he took on all the wrath of God in our place to spare us from an eternity of suffering. And because he has spared us from an eternity of suffering, that the suffering that we experience here one day, no matter how horrible, 
your suffering is, all right? Not, we're not saying that suffering is minor. Suffering is great in this world. But it pales in comparison to what awaits us in eternity. When, when the son of David returns to have communion with us in the flesh, with bread and wine, on that day, whatever you and I go through, no matter the amount of tears it causes us, or no matter how dry it makes our soul because we've wept all that we could wept, when Christ returns, all of that rearview mirror, it's going to pale in comparison. For though the work of God divides and it is marked with suffering, it prevails. It always will. It always has. And in doing so, the bride of Christ, his church, we here at Hope, we're going to be sanctified in that process. We will be made pure for that great wedding day so that we can engage in the great wedding feast, that great wedding banquet with the son of David, alongside David, and alongside Jonathan, because we are faithful to God. We don't give in to the seduction of the world. We trust the sovereignty of God. And and, and most importantly, we do so together. David and Jonathan they walked together through this process. Jonathan was not on his own. David was there with him. David wasn't on his own. They came up with this plan together. They wept together over this. They reminded each other of this. So likewise, let us rejoice when there's rejoicing to be done with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let us weep with one another as well when we weep. But now let us come to the table. Let us come to communion, reminding ourselves of the covenant that Christ has made with us, the promises that he has given us, that he will return to anyone who does not deny him for his sake before the world will enter into eternal everlasting life, into his presence when he returns. So at this time, we're going to go into a communion. If you're new or visiting, uh, we practice uh, open table here, meaning ultimately you don't have to be a you don't have to be a member to partake of communion here, however, and you don't have to be baptized. Uh, however, if you are not baptized, I would challenge you in that and ask yourself, why are you not baptized? Um, it is commanded. We can have that discussion, but we do not forbid um, you to come. Um, if you are not a believer, though, please refrain from partaking. If there is a sin in your life of which you are unrepentant of that you acknowledge or there's something on your conscience, on your mind, that you just feel guilty of and you can't you're unable to give it to god or there's an offense with the brother sister christ refrain from uh the table let's talk about it uh, first Um, i will bless the elements after i bless the elements i will serve uh, nate and then he'll play uh, music take some time to pray before god confess your sins ask the spirit to work in you ask um, him to use this moment uh, to help guide your week so that when you do struggle this week you can look back and you ask yourself, why am I doing this? Well, what's the point? And may the taste of the cracker and the juice uh, come to your, to your mind and remind, you, remind yourself of the covenants and the promises of the gospel. Um, so at this time, I will... Oh, and we'll keep the elements up here um, the whole time until everyone leaves. So take your time. Don't feel rushed, even during the worship music. If you haven't come up, you can come up. And we're still doing the Zoom thing. So there we have other people of our church. Um, so if you're new or visiting, we just started this uh, last week. And so this allows us, because communion is a corporate activity, just like baptism is. Communion is an extension of that baptism. When you come up here, you're saying to the church, walk with me, hold me accountable, encourage me. Likewise, I'm going to do the same thing with you. And so by them being at home and with a camera on, we can see them and they can see us on the live stream. Um, We're still able to maintain that corporate aspect of communion, which is essential and vital to it. Um, And at the same time, uh, provide a safe space for those who are unable to gather with us right now during uh, our time that we have with the pandemic. So let's uh, bless the elements and then we'll partake. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for allowing us to gather and to um, hear your word this morning. 
We covered a lot of ground this morning, Father, and we thank you that we're able to read your word um, out loud in a safe place. We thank you for this nation. We thank you for the right to gather freely, Father, but our hope ultimately isn't in that. It's in your Son, and that's why we gather. We gather to worship the work of your Son. We gather to give you glory, to allow your Spirit uh, to lead us, to mold us, to encourage us, to heal us, Father. Through your word, help us to remember Christ crucified. And as we come to the table this morning, as we partake of the elements, the the bread and the juice, may it linger in our mouths, Father. That whatever we may fill our mouths with during the week, Father, may the taste of the cup and the taste of the bread always be there. Draw us continually to your word to be reminded of the promises, Father. We can tell us that, tell ourselves that, but if we don't know what those promises are, it falls flat. So help us be reminded by going to your word directly. Help us to dive into your word and to have a hunger for it so that we can have the confidence that when division comes, when that moment comes, we don't waver. That we know it's coming because you have told us. But we also know that you will, your work will be accomplished. You will be glorified through it. And you will glorify us in the end when we are gathered to you and your son returns. Help us cling to that promise. Help us to resist the temptations of the love of the world. Help us to resist the idols of this world. Help us to resist uh, the idea that peace is ultimately possible and we can have utopia here without your son here reigning. Father, help us be faithful to the scripture in all matters. And as we share the truth of scriptures with our loved ones, with those whom we might lose relationships with, help us to do so with grace. Help us to do so with love and compassion. Help us share it out of love and compassion. And help us to trust in your work, knowing that whatever we say, Father, your spirit is with us. And it's not ultimately us who changes their hearts, but it is you. But you have desired to use us in that process. So help us walk faithfully in that, Father. Prepare us for the tears that will come in this life. Help us to shed ourselves of the idea that there is not suffering for the Christian. There's not suffering for the believer. That suffering is some fantasy, some made-up thing out there, Father. This life is full of it. We hurt regularly, but you are with us night and day. You do not sleep. We do, but you don't. Comfort us. Give us rest. Help us to go to one another with our burdens, with our pains. Help us to remind each other of the covenant that that your son has made with us and the good promises. Father, you know each and every one here those gathered online as well. You know the pains of our souls. You know every teardrop that has been shed this past week. And you know every teardrop that will be shed into eternity when we stop shedding them. So Father, we ask that you will comfort us, that you will be with us, and that we will be with one another. We thank you for this act of communion before us. We thank you for this gift given to us by your Son. And we ask all these things, Father, for your glory, by the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, and in the name of the Son of David, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.